comes around the boards and Buffalo back in the other direction. Coming in over the line. Ryan Ristolainen, he scores! Ristolainen wound up and rifled it past Carey Price and Buffalo wins it in overtime. What is up? It is snowing in Buffalo, New York. It actually looks pretty. Big giant lake effect snowflakes coming down for the first time of the year. And we are recording season 8, episode 16 of the Sportscasters. Thanks for joining us today. Good show for you today. Kenny Albert uh, last Sunday called his 400th NFL game on Fox. And Kenny's going to join us in a minute. As soon as I'm done laying everything out, Kenny's going to join us to talk about his 400 games on Fox. We got had a good conversation looking back, talked about his number one all-time game, which was a painful one for me, but one that he actually talked about on this show the day after. Uh, so that's kind of a cool story. We'll, we'll get into that, get into some Rangers things. You can hear me butcher a uh, Rangers player's last name, which I like to do. I'll tell you right now, the kid's always going to be Neil Point to me because it just sounds cooler. Uh, also on the show, we're going to clear the deck a little bit with the book club because it's filling up fast. Uh, Scott Ryan is going to join us to talk about the last days of Letterman. Kind of something different I took a chance on. And, you know, sometimes you do that, you take a chance on something different, and it stinks. You know what? Here's a good example. A while back, a couple years back, we took an exa- uh, I took a chance on a book about Alice in Chains. The book was awesome, but the guy was a dud on the on the air that, that came on. So that happens sometimes. But this is a case where the book was awesome, and the guy was awesome, and we did almost an hour, and it's really fun. So we'll play that interview after the book club update, which is going to be five, six minutes, because the book club went from getting rid of Perlman's two books last week and us finishing the last days of Letterman, to adding three books this week, including a book by the author of the two biggest selling sports books of all time, who is uh, hopefully going to appear on this program in the near future. Uh, according to the publicist, he is, although we learned with the L. Michaels book that the publicist doesn't always have the ultimate authority to book a guest, but we'll see. Uh, and then, of course, we will uh, do one last thing. And that's pretty much the show. Don't forget you can find this show uh, and all our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. I seen some research the other day. It says about 60% of podcasts are listened to on the Apple Podcast app. The one that was really high was Spotify that we're not on. Uh, So I'm going to work on that this week on getting Spotify, sportscasters on Spotify. I don't know if anyone listens to podcasts there that listen to this show, uh, but I may as well be on it. It it won't hurt. Uh, Also, you can find uh, me on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com like my friend uh, Bill McGrath did, and he got a Jane Levy 
the big fella book out of it. So uh, we'll talk more about what books I have uh, left if you want to email me and get a copy of it. We'll talk about that more in the book club. Uh, but the email, again, is thesportscasters at gmail.com. Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Apple Podcasts. I wouldn't mind a review if anyone's got five minutes. You want to give five stars and uh, maybe even write up a real quick review. Boy, Steve, he's a real mensch. He's a great guy. I like uh, I like the way he talks about sports. You know, go ahead and do that. That wouldn't be bad. Um, I don't have much else to say in the intro. I said it's snowing. We're marching towards Thanksgiving. We got two cool guests today. So let's turn it over to them. Uh, we'll talk more about next week. I think that show is pretty much booked. Uh, we can talk more about that after the breaks at the end before one last thing. We'll preview next week's show. Uh, and I'll talk to you more about what I've been doing with booking. So I did a lot of that this week too. Maybe that'll be one last thing. One last thing I'm booking this show and the pros and cons of it, which we've talked about before, but I'll give you an update. All right, let's take a break and let's come back with Kenny Albert. Our first guest today is from New York City. He's a graduate of NYU. He's sportscaster's royalty. And he's called 400 NFL games on Fox. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Kenny Albert. What's up, Mr. 400? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Steve. How are you? 400 NFL games on Fox. Congratulations. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's hard to believe. I remember the first game like it was yesterday. It was September 4th, '94. The L.A. Rams, yes, they were the L.A. Rams before they moved to St. Louis. And the Arizona Cardinals, Buddy Ryan's first game as Cardinals head coach. Chuck Knox, who recently passed away, was the head coach of the Rams. And it was a 14-12 final score down at Anaheim Stadium. And, again, hard to believe it's it's over 24 years and 400 games. Do you remember who, who was your partner that first game? Because I was going through, you've had, you've had a six, seven partners or so for Fox doing that time. Yeah, it was Ron Titz. We were, we were partners my first year. Ron had played for Green Bay in Buffalo. His dad, the late great Elijah Pitts, member of Super Bowl teams in Green Bay uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s. And we had a lot of fun together. I was 26 at the time, and Ron was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, we were part of that group. Fox hired a bunch of the veteran broadcasters from CBS. Uh, like Summer Hall, of course, right. John yeah. Madden as the number one crew, Dick Stockton and Matt Millen, uh, Kevin Harlan and Jerry Glanville were the number three crew at the time, and they decided to take a chance on some youngsters, and, and that's how uh, Joe Buck and Tom Brenneman and myself uh, got started with the NFL. You know, never in a million years would I ever have imagined that I would be working NFL games at, at ever, you know, let alone at that age, and um, Fox decided to go with this younger group, and they also hired Anthony Munoz and Ron Pitts uh, right off the field, and Tim Green as well, who was my partner for seven years beginning in 1996. And uh, we worked 10 games that first year, um, but the first one was that Rams Cardinals game, uh, 9-4-94. And uh, like I said, still remember it like it was yesterday. What had you done up to that point? Mostly hockey at that point still? or Yes, mostly hockey. Um, I had spent two years with the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League. And that was my second season um, in the NHL with the Washington Capitals on the TV side 
I began with them in 92, 93 with home team sports in Washington. And then that was actually the lockout year, 94, 95. So schedule wise, although we all hated that there was a lockout, it actually worked out well um, because I was able to, uh, you know, devote my full attention to football and going on Fridays for the practice with the home team, et cetera, uh, with no hockey until January 95 that year. So as it turns out, the, the timing actually wasn't too bad. Um, although, again, we hated to lose hockey for those three or four months. They didn't start up again until January 20th, I think, in 95. Um, I had also done some, some basketball and baseball fill-in work down in D.C., three or four games with the Orioles and three or four games with the Washington Bullets at the time, but it was mostly hockey. Um, the last football game I actually worked before that initial NFL game was uh, college football in New York, Wagner College on Staten Island Cable in 1988, 89, and 90s. So that was wow. the last football I had actually worked. It's interesting because we all think about how damaging the year-long strike was and what was that, 04, 05, or 05, whatever, right in that period there. But that 94 uh, one really hurt because they had had all that momentum from that amazing 94 playoff run with the, that the Rangers had. Remember they were on the cover of SI, why the NHL is surging past the NBA? And then they get that strike and then the devils happens and it just kind of like, Oh, Oh man. No, that was a great, great playoff in 94. Oh, what a year that was in Washington. So the capitals had upset Pittsburgh in the first round. They played the Rangers Rangers, in the second round. And I also had the opportunity to work the Rangers Canucks for NHL radio that year. And it was a tremendous series, went to seven games and you're right. That sports illustrated cover, uh, comparing the NHL to the NBA at that point. And, uh, then the lockout happened and, I remember the Rangers never raised the banner until January 20th. It was a game against the Sabres, ironically. Uh, but January 20th of 95, they raised the Stanley Cup banner, and then Jeez. It, was a, it was a shortened season. And like you said, the Devils went on to beat the Red Wings in the Stanley Cup that yeah. year. Yeah. That 94 Cup is my favorite. I, I'm a huge Pavel Bure fan, and I love the Rangers. The Rangers have always kind of been my other hockey team. If the Sabres aren't around, I, I've always loved the Rangers because – of MSG and the Mystique and, and getting to go to a game there when I was young and, and just all about that. But you think about that series. I mean, your Rangers get up 3-1 after crazy games in Vancouver. Remember the game in Vancouver where Bure scored on a breakaway like in the first minute and then got chucked out of the game for a high-sticking penalty? You remember that? And, yeah, I do. And then you also had the, the penalty shot when Richter stopped Bure right. in, in one of the games in Vancouver. Right, amazing. And then game five is like, was this crazy day. Like, it was like the Rangers are going to win the cup. And there was that nuts third period where the Rangers fought back. And then the Canucks got three in a row to win it. And then they win game six, and it set up the amazing theater at game seven. But that's one of my favorites. Right, game five was the day, you know, you wake up in the morning and the Rangers are up 3-1 and it's a hot, you know, 90-degree day in New York and, and the front page of the tabloids had the Stanley Cup on it and everybody was expecting the Rangers to win that game that Yes. Night. And like you said, they tied it up and then Dave Babbage scored the go-ahead goal for the Canucks. And I'll, I'll give you a little inside scoop, Steve. Yeah. That was the day I met my wife after that game. <laughs> wow, no that kidding. We met for the first time. And if, if the Rangers had won that night, we probably would not have met. Uh, because I, I would have gone to some kind of a party or celebration at MSG. It turns out they lost. There was no party. And uh, my wife had gone to college with a good friend of mine at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And 
he happened to be up in New York that night. Um, he works in radio down in Baltimore, Jerry Coleman, Sports with Coleman. And uh, he was in New York, and he happened to have dinner with, with uh, my wife and, and two of her roommates from college. They were all good friends um, up at Ithaca, and I uh, wound up meeting up with them after the game. So, Wow, what a story. In, in a strange way, if the Rangers win that game five, we never would have met. Wow, what a story. And then, you know, you might have thought of this too, Kenny. That happened to Pittsburgh a few years ago. Do you remember Pittsburgh when they were about to close against San Jose, had that game five at home, and everyone thought that was going to be the night for Pittsburgh. And I remember saying something to my brother like, man, this happened to the Rangers where everyone felt like that was the night and then it didn't happen. And um, I don't know if you recall that. That last win is always the toughest, yeah. as you know, especially at home. The cup's in the building. There's so much tension, you know, nervous tension and, uh, you're right. It did happen to the Penguins, and then they won the Cup out in San Jose in Game Six. Right, Penguins still haven't haven't won one at home. Uh, the um, I was looking through some cool games you've done for Fox for football, and I would you I would because I looked through your playoff games, and I would think that maybe the best game you've done on Fox is the catch three, the Saints and Forty ers divisional playoff game in the 2011 season. Is that is that one that comes to mind when you think about the best games? Because what's cool about that for our purposes is we talked on Monday, you and I, about that game. You were nice enough to call, and we, we broke it down. And you helped heal my open wound. You know I'm a huge Saints fan, but that that game, four lead changes in the last 352, it's got a nickname. You know, if you, if you play a playoff game that gets a nickname, you know it was a good one. Uh, tell me what you think about that in terms of your best games you've called for Fox and what are maybe some other ones you'd throw out. Absolutely. Um, I actually made a list last week and uh, of my top NFL and Fox memories, and, and that's the first game on the list. It was the divisional playoff game in, in January of 2012, four touchdowns scored in the last four minutes. Uh, so that's the one I put at the top, and uh, I'll give you a couple of the others. Uh, there was a Seahawks-Packers divisional playoff in the snow at Lambeau Field in January of 08. That turned out to be Brett Favre's last win as a Green Bay Packer. And that was your first um, playoff game, right? Or was that that was the first playoff first game one, we yep. worked with with Moose and Goose, Tony Sergus and Daryl Johnston? Um, yeah, those would be the two as far as playoffs with the Saints Forty ers game on top. Um, there was also a regular season game, and you, you can't compare regular season to playoffs. But fifty two forty nine, you'll remember this one: the Saints and the Giants in two thousand fifteen. Oh yeah, Drew Brees and Eli Manning combined to throw thirteen touchdown passes in that game. Yep, Brees had seven. Um, you know, aside from that. There, there's, there are a lot of individual memories. Um, we had the Victor Cruz 99-yard touchdown for the Giants against the Jets in 2011. That kind of catapulted the Giants to their Super Bowl, or at least into the playoffs that year. Uh, we had Brett Favre breaking Dan Marino's all-time passing yardage record in St. Louis back in 2007. We saw that record broken recently with Drew Brees, uh, but Favre broke it. We were working that game. Um, also, Terrell Owens stomping on the star in Dallas 2000. I was there for that one with Tim Green, uh, Michael Vick, forty-nine or forty-six-yard overtime touchdown oh, the in Vikings. Minnesota mm. in two thousand two, and then he ran right up the tunnel. We had a great comeback, uh, Tim Tebow and the Broncos against the Bears in two thousand eleven. So I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but but those were were certainly the top games and top moments that come to mind. Those are some great ones. I, you know, it's I don't know if it's sad, but I can almost remember every one of those games. That Vick touchdown that might be his career highlight. Like if if you. If you said what was the signature of Mike Vick play, it might be that where he just, you know, it almost looks like the other guys aren't moving. Tremendous run, and 
I actually, uh, he was at our Fox seminar this summer. He now works on the uh, early pregame show, and we were reminiscing about that game a little bit. Yeah, that's a really cool one. And wow, and to see a record broken like that. And then the irony of you work in the Owen Star game, it's your 400th week, and that's the week that someone chooses to pay, pay quote unquote, tribute to that celebration. Uh, I'm on yeah, I football. About, I actually thought about that. <laughs> That's that's crazy. That's really that's really fun. What uh is there anything football wise you you haven't done for Fox? That's a goal. Is there a stadium you haven't called a game in yet you want to call or a player? Is there something in your mind that you you, you feel like has to happen? You know, I, I think I've hit every stadium now. Well, except for the Chargers, I haven't worked a game at, at the Chargers. The uh, little one, the know, new little one. Stadium. Yeah, um, made it out to San Francisco last year for their new stadium. You know, obviously, the the ultimate goal is the Super Bowl, and not a lot of guys get the opportunity to to do that on, on the network. But I did work one Super Bowl uh, for the World Feed on international TV. It was the Giants Patriots in Indianapolis in 2012. It was a couple of weeks after that 49ers Saints game, and uh, yeah, I remember Joe Theismann. Joe Theismann was my color analyst, so did have the opportunity to work a Super Bowl uh, on the international side. So that was a lot of fun, um, but. Again, I've had great partners through the years. Uh, in chronological order, I've gone from Ron Pitts to Anthony Munoz to Tim Green for seven years, Brian Baldinger for four, uh, Moose and Goose together for eight, and then Moose and Laura Oakman for two more years. Uh, Rondé Barber last year with Christina Pink, and Rondé again this year, and love working with Rondé. Uh, loved all those guys. You know, the Moose and Goose years were tremendous. Um, really enjoyed Brian Baldinger and Tim Green and Anthony Munoz is a legend. I remember one time we were up in Green Bay and, and Reggie White stopped practicing to come over and uh, say hello and pay his respects to Anthony. And Ron Pitts was a lot of fun that first year. And I, I've also had the opportunity uh, to work some games with, with Troy Aikman through the years and uh, Bill Moss a couple of games back in the day and uh, the Sugar Bowl with Terry Bradshaw and Howie Long. So great memories with all those guys. Let me ask you one geeky question, and we'll tie it into Rondé. You name those partners, and I'm thinking, all right, offensive lineman, you know, fullback, QB, you know, DB. How does it? How has been working with Rondé and transitioning to working with a guy who made his money playing the game on the defensive side of the ball after doing so many years uh, with a fullback? I know it's a little nerdy, but you know. It's a great question. It's funny that you asked that, Steve, because I never really thought about it, but but I went from a defensive back in Ron Pitts to an offensive lineman in Anthony Munoz to a defensive lineman in Tim Green, back to an offensive lineman in Brian Baldinger, and then Moose, who was a fullback, and Tony Siragusa, who was a defensive tackle, and now back to the defensive back, one of the best all-time in in Rondé Barber, and worked some games with quarterback in Troy Aikman, Terry Bradshaw, um, when Moose, and he's told this story on many occasions, when, when he was first looking to get into the television business, um, there were a couple of executives at various networks who told him running backs never really do well at this. And they gave a couple of examples from the past. And Moose's response was, I'm not a running back, I'm a fullback. And his point was that he saw the game in entirely different light than had he been a running back. He had a study what the quarterback does in every play, what the receivers do, what the offensive line does, whereas a running back is probably just studying the holes and where to run behind the fullback. So Moose had a great point. You know, he really knew the game from just about every position 
on the offense, and and that would that would uh, you know be a big part of his analysis. So um, he sort of had a global view of the game. Rondé and all the guys I work with uh, were hard workers and studied, uh, but Rondé, the amount of preparation that he puts in is incredible. It's like he's still playing. On, on Monday and Tuesday, he'll sit down and watch eight hours of film. One team on Monday, one team on Tuesday. He'll continue his work on Wednesday. And by Thursday, he sends a report. And I know I'm giving out some of his secrets now, but <laughs> he sends out a report to, to myself and the production crew. It's nine or ten pages long. It, it goes into great detail on every player in the game, on matchups, on what to look for this week. It's incredible. You know, I, I pride myself on preparation. And if I did nothing all week and only read Rondé's report, I probably be able to get through the game you know that, wow. that's how good it is so um great guy he's a hall of fame nominee he should make it one of these years it would be ironic if he made it next year in 2020 considering that he wore number 20 um but really enjoy working with him and also i, I failed to mention charles davis who i worked uh four games with this year and four games last year and john lynch uh the season prior to that also guys that do a great job who I really enjoyed working with. So sorry I left them off the original list. The sports guests are here finishing up with Kenny Albert, a good friend of the show, has been on a bunch of times. I can't thank him enough and wanted to bring him on to congratulate him on his four hundredth game. Don't forget you can uh you can find him on Twitter at Kenny Albert and all the awesome stuff he does, Fox Sports, MSG Network, NBC play by play, uh all kinds of great hockey stuff. And I want to end on a hockey question because you can make an argument that the goal of the year was scored the other night by Neil Poink, who is a kid that was an undrafted free agent signee by the Rangers. It kind of went under the radar a little bit when that season was going, you know, the, the free agent period was going on. Tell me a little bit about Neil, what you've seen from him, and how big his upside is because, man, did he turn a lot of heads with that goal. He sure did. Um, like you said, he was a free agent uh, coming out of Minnesota Duluth. Apparently he had 10 or 11 teams interested in him. And and the goal Pionk scored the other night, um, you know, my partner Dave Maloney on Rangers Radio immediately brought up the name Bobby Orr. It looked uh, like Bobby Pionk Orr, yeah. Got the puck in his own zone, spun away from one of the Canadians, took it up the left side, and then all the way into the Montreal zone and then cut to the net and, and beat Carey Price. And it was the game winner, a game the Rangers had trailed 3-1, and that gave them a 4-3 lead. They wound up winning the game 5-3. And Pionk also wears number 44, so it's two fours, Bobby Orr's number, which we mentioned as well. And we had him on the air about 10 minutes after the game ended on the radio from, from outside the locker room. And I asked him if any of his teammates had started to call him Bobby yet, you know, over the last 10 minutes. And he said, yeah, there are a couple of references already. So um, he's been a good power play quarterback. Um, he, he has a number of assists, I think six assists on the power play already this year. And, uh, he's a good skater, great skater. And I think that goal certainly lifted his profile around the NHL because it was on the highlight films everywhere. Yeah. Interesting career. I mean, just, uh, it's that path. I love to see the USHL to college to NHL. You know, I love to see it happen and the opportunities that are out there now for American players, whether they're first overall picks, like, you know, Jack Eichel, who took that route, you know, of course, with the development team, but they play in the USHL now. And he was the second pick. I know I said first. Or, you know, a guy who goes undrafted. It's like, just love to see that. But um, And Hank, man, did he steal a game from the Sabres the other night. I thought the Sabres he did. He did. dominated. And, you know, and, this Ranger team, 
this Ranger team has surprised some people. Steve. Yeah, they've won four in a row. They're they're at the five hundred mark now, uh, seven seven and two after a bit of a rough start. New head coach who who you know to this point has done a great job. I love what David Quinn has done and his honesty and press conferences whenever he meets with the media. He hasn't been afraid to bench players. Um, and when you look at the young core, you know you have Henrik Lundqvist, 35-year-old superstar goaltender, but the the core is just so young. And and between Pionk and Philip Heedle and Leah Sanderson and Brett Howden's been a uh, not a surprise necessarily because we heard great things coming out of the Tampa organization. They drafted him in the first round, but not a lot of fans knew much about him, and he's been one of their best players uh, at the start of this season. So. Um, and Tony D'Angelo, a young defenseman, 23 years of age, who was the number one pick of Tampa Bay as well. He scored a big goal the other night. So uh, a lot of positives when, when you look at this Ranger team and, and the young roster they're putting together. Well, listen, Kenny, I appreciate the time. I hope you get a few more classics in on the NFL season, on the NFL side this season. And um, playoffs, NHL playoffs this year, hopefully you get a Sabres game. Uh, hopefully the young Sabres can, uh, can battle their way in somehow. But um, – Thanks so much for doing this, and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. Always a lot of fun talking to you. You've become somewhat of a historian of of, uh, of broadcasting, not only in football but hockey as well. And I uh, love chatting about some of the old games, and uh, let's do it again soon. All right, buddy. Thank you. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank the great Kenny Albert He's always just an email away Great guy Thanks for the time, Kenny Congratulations on 400 NFL games. All right, book club update. It's a big one. I did a lot of work on the book club this week. Of course, on last week's episode, episode 15 of season 8, we had Jeff Perlman on, and we talked about Football for a Buck, his book on the USFL, and we also talked about the Best American Sports Writing 2018, which he edited. I do have a copy of Jeff Perlman's Football for a Buck. So if you'd like a copy of that, you can email me, sportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll send it for you. It's a brand new copy. You keep it for yourself or maybe give it to someone as a Christmas gift. But I got one if you want one. And don't be shy if I've given you a book before. I have no problem giving someone two. So that's kind of cleared the deck, which leaves us with two books hanging that we've been promoting. One, The Last Days of Letterman, which we're going to finish in a minute. As soon as we're done with this, we're going to cut to an interview I did with Scott Ryan about the last days of Letterman. So, the other book that is still hanging over me is the one I am desperately trying to finish reading right now, The Big Fella by Jane Levy, and I am reading as many pages as I can a day. It's a big one. It's a, it's a heavy one. There's a lot of work to read it. Uh, it's a great book so far. It's one of those books I di- didn't know I wanted. What? What's wrong, Paula? I don't know where Colston is, no. Paula's looking for our dog. You want to talk on the microphone? 
No? Okay. So I am reading Jane's book, The Big Fella, and if I can finish it, maybe Jane will be on next week. Either way, I want to get it done before Thanksgiving. So one of the next two shows, we should finish The Big Fella. So with that in mind, I said it's time to get some more books ready for this book club. And we've never made any secret on this show, back to when it was Don and I, or just myself, that the main function of the book club is to get guests, right? Like Frank DeFord would have never been on this program if he didn't have a book to sell. There's just no way. You know, Artie Lang would have never been on this program without a book to sell. So there's a strategy there, and it may pay off again. Uh, I have confirmed and have a copy of Quarterback uh, Inside the Most Important Position in the National Football League by John Feinstein. The book comes out November 13th. John is the author of the two biggest-selling sports books of all time. A Season on the Brink, I believe, is number one. And I can't remember what the second one is. Uh, either way, he has the top two selling sports books. And the publisher uh, seemed to have no problem uh, with promising an interview as well. So uh, what I do is I email a pitch. I say, we'll, we'll plug uh, these books. And I'll read the book. And all I ask is for one. You can send more if you want. And I'll do a contest. I'll give them away. Some people have given away books. Some haven't. SL Price gave away 10. Whatever you'd like to do. And then I say the only other thing I ask is for at least 20 minutes at the end of the process to question the author. And uh, she sent and asked for a list of dates. So John Feinstein, maybe sometime soon, will make his uh, his debut on the Sportscasters. Uh, but that book, Quarterback, uh, will be out on November 13th. And we'll talk more about it as I get to uh, flipping through it. Also, talk to the people at ECW Press, which is a Canadian company does a lot of hockey and wrestling books, and there's a hot one, and I'm really excited about this. It's called Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever. I haven't done a wrestling book in a while, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing this one. It's by a guy named Tim Hornbaker, who's written wrestling books in the past, and uh, this one is available now. It's uh, 1336 only on Amazon right now. Uh, it's twelve sixty nine for Kindle. It's also available on Apple on Apple Books. Um, so easy to access. Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever. And Tim will join us uh, to talk about it. Also this week, I talked with another uh, podcast friend, Sean McIndoe, Down Goes Brown on Twitter. And he has a new book, The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL. And um, it's the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league. Uh, I know I think I have three copies of that coming, so I'll have two to give away. It's right now the number one best-selling book in hockey on Amazon, uh, so it is available. Uh, only eleven ninety-nine right now on Kindle, and it's actually it's actually on sale as well, um, where you have to uh, you know click to see it. They won't even show me the price. Um, so we added three books this week. So real quick to recap. Thank you so much to Jeff Perlman for being with us last week and talking about his new book, Football for a Buck, about the USFL. And, of course, editing the best American sports writing. In one minute, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Sean, or excuse me, Scott Ryan. Uh, thank you to Scott for letting us help promote The Last Days of Letterman, the final six weeks. Listen to that interview for information on how you can get a copy of the book. Next up is The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created by Jane Levy, the number one selling book in baseball on Amazon. 
Uh, hopefully we'll talk to Jane in one of the next couple episodes. And the three new ones we added, Quarterback by John Feinstein, available November 13th. Death of the Territories by Tim Hornbaker, available now and on sale. And Sean McIndoe, Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport, and the world's most ridiculous league. That's the book club update. I know it's a mouthful. Uh, if there's something in there that you think you want a copy of, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and if I have a copy to give away, I will send you one. All right, let's take a break, and let's do this. The Last Days of Letterman with Scott Ryan. Our next guest lives in Columbus, Ohio. He's a graduate of Akron. He's an author of several books, including one about the television show 30-something, and a comedy book about his bad luck called Scott Luck Stories. And he's also the author of one of our book club books of the month, The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks. And his name is Scott Ryan. How you doing, Scott? Welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited. It's been a, it's been a long correspondence leading to this point. I know. I feel like we're old friends <laughs> by now. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we. Uh, I've been. I. I don't know how. There, you know, one thing I want to compliment you about this book is aesthetically, it's very pleasing. It looks great. The pictures are beautiful, and it, and I think that's what caught my eye, even on Twitter. I think in the very beginning, just the book has a look to it that caught my eye. And a subject I love to talk about because I love taking a break from sports. So I was excited about the thought of doing something with Late Night, especially Letterman. And um, I think that's the first thing that caught my eye. And I think that's why I reached out. There's just something about the look and the way you presented it. Is that something you, you that... focused on in any way? Or... Well, that's actually a heck of a story. But this, the version you're, you guys all have out in the world was designed by Mark Karras and he did an amazing job and we started this is the first book in a new company called FMP that I'm doing with uh, my partner David Bushman and we're going to have Mark do all our books because I think he his design of this book was amazing I mean it really brought it to life I couldn't agree more I mean I think it pops I mean the second I opened the box I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I've seen. Like, yeah, this is it. And then, I mean, every page, just the, I mean, the font choices. Well, and and the... that's, you know, I know that I wrote it, so it's it's always like you, you wonder when someone compliments it. But I didn't design it. But my thing has been if I could just get this book in front of people, I know they're going to buy it. Like if you're in yep. a bookstore oh, and you agree. pick up book you open it and you're like what this is like it's in full color mm -hmm. and i've explained that to people so many times and then they still get the book and they're like it's in full color and i'm like yeah i know <laughs> no, i know it, it's not something i usually bring up it's not something i usually think of but it pops with this book you know it's like something you can't help but notice so i was curious about it um i just finished a book called football for a buck by an author named um jeff perlman and um He's a good guy, kind of a friend of the show. And uh, his whole thing about that USFL book was that, you know, it was his passion project, that nobody wanted it, that people said, you know, nobody wants a book about the USFL, Jeff. Like, you had to take less money. And that's kind of the backstory of the book. And I had that on my mind when I was reading your book. And, you know, in the beginning, you talk about how you made this kind of bold decision to ignore 
the first however long in the history of David Letterman to focus on the final six weeks that, you know, through this kind of cool story with your DVR and losing a job that you kind of, you know, kind of focused in on that final six weeks. And I wonder when you made that decision and you put a treatment together and you started to try to, to try to think about doing this book, was, was that the feedback you have? Like, was it nobody wants the final six weeks? Was it like, wow, great angle, you know, nobody would have wanted the whole show or like, how, how did the decision to focus on the final six weeks that you make ultimately, how has that been received? Uh, and how is that playing out as you kind of move on to the selling the book phase of this? Well, it's actually kind of what you are leaning into. Everyone thought it was a stupid idea. <laughs> I mean, or they would say, Oh, yeah, the last six weeks, that's a great idea, but you're going to cover when Drew Barrymore took her top off, right? And then I'd be like, no, that didn't happen in the last six weeks. Well, you got to put that in. <laughs> and, and like that's how you make a bad book is that you try to get everything in the world. And I, I mean, David Letterman was in pop culture for 33 years and is still going. So if you try to put that in a book, you're, you're going to get something that is a mess. And this is a very tight book. It's only about what happened in those six weeks. Now in doing that, obviously in that last six weeks, he did top 10 lists. So when we're covering top 10 lists, Someone might mention older top 10 lists and you sort of learn how they did one. But we don't cover the history of top 10 because that would be too much. This is very focused on saying goodbye to a television icon. Yeah. And like I had just read the Jason Zinneman book. Uh, you know, I didn't need that book. You know what I mean? I didn't need part two of that or whatever. Um, and maybe you could, you know, maybe that's more of a about him personally than the show. But um, to me, like I liked the angle just because it felt like something focused. It felt like reading about something – a topic that a lot existed but in an angle that hadn't been explored. And I think I appreciated that. And I also liked the way, as you kind of mentioned, the history weaves in. You know, like let's say you're talking about Howard Stern and, and his last appearance. You, you kind of weave in about how – he had been on this many times. I think it was like 24, 25 for Howard, somewhere in that range. And how, and you give a, like a brief, like, hey, they worked together at NBC when Howard was on NBC in the 80s and they shared a floor while Letterman had this holding deal. So you get some history, you get a little background there, you know, or, um, you know, with several guests, you say, you know, that they've been on this many times. And, or like with Eddie Vedder, I'm a big Pearl Jam guy. So like the first thing I did when I got this book is I wanted to read the part about Eddie Vedder singing Better Man. Um, on the show, that was the first thing I read. I skipped right to it, and um, you know, you, you talk about kind of his history and how that he'd been on several times with the band, and um, of course, he had his unbelievable moment where he came out of the blue and walked onto the stage to sing "Part of Black" because it had been kind of a running joke on the show. But um, so you find a way to weave the history in there, but still stay focused on the final six weeks. So I thought that was well. I'm excited to hear you say that you know you went right to Eddie Vedder because that is the other way the book is set up. Because if if it was me, if I didn't write this book, and I would have most certainly bought it, I would have gone straight to Amy Sedaris. Amy Sedaris was my all time favorite. Yep, you mentioned Dave. That, yeah. 
guests. And um, the book is set up that way because I also I'm I'm very realistic. I, I also am the managing editor of a Twin Peaks magazine called The Blue Rose. And that's sort of what I do on a more day-to-day basis and I'm well aware that people are not going to read that magazine like they love getting it they love seeing pictures from it you know but nobody sits down and reads something start to finish now unless it's a meme and even then you might have to (laughs) beg them so this is a book that you don't have to sit down it's better if you read it in order because you learn it, it, the emotion really rolls as it gets closer to the end because you start to care about the people that you didn't even know about before you started. But it is set up where you could just read the Bill Murray episode or, you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of Amy Schumer. So I go to the Amy Schumer part. Right. Yeah. And we can kind of kind of lead us kind of pretty well. And so we can kind of talk about the structure of it and kind of the decisions you made there because, it's kind of a mix between an oral history and then the fo- the flowing narrative that you provide. It's kind of – it's not a straight narrative book, but it's also not a straight oral history. It's kind of a combination of both, which I thought worked pretty well because there is you kind of providing uh, the, the information in the background and uh, some of the details. And then there's the firsthand accounts and kind of the oral history version of it. Talk a little bit about your decision to, to structure it the way you did and kind of combining – uh, those two different styles. Well, my previous book was called 30 something at 30. And, um, it was a TV show from the eighties and I'm pretty certain 30 something is not normally mentioned on a sports podcast. So I do win an award for that. Yes. And that was First an oral. Yeah. Um, the, that was a strict oral history. I'm not in that book at all. Like it's just them talking. And I thought that it worked for that because of the way that that book was structured. And like if you watched a TV show and you're faithful to it, like if if, let's say Seinfeld or something, if I was doing a Seinfeld book, do I really need to explain to you what the contest is? Like, you know, people know what that episode is or the Chinese restaurant. But with Letterman... That's not exactly true. You might have watched those episodes, but you don't really remember what Julia Roberts said or what happened. So I'm in the book, but I always tried to stay out of the way. Like, I'm just guiding the reader and kind of saying, okay, this is what happened in the episode. And then we bring in the segment producer, the director, or the music booker, and then you get the the behind-the-scenes stuff. So as the book goes on, I disappear... A lot. And in fact, I'm not even in the last chapter. It is a strict oral history because by that time, I'm hoping the reader has bonded with all of these people. And, you know, they were there on the last day, not me. So you don't need me at that point. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting choice and a a cool direction for it to kind of mix the two styles. Um, I really like that. And I'm trying to think if Seppenwall, when he was on promoting TV The Book, if you mentioned 30 something, I'm not sure. So could have been second, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with I'm the only one. All right. All right. You know, I, I do want to hijack the whole show. Sure. Because, go for it. Um, I am from Maslin, Ohio. Okay. And that is, they have the most famous high school football team in the country, the Maslin Tigers. And so have you ever talked about Maslin McKinley, which is the biggest football game in the country in the high school football game in the country have you heard of it i've heard of the game 
but the closest I've come to talking about it is a guy named S.L. Price wrote a book about Pennsylvania high school football um, about that focuses on a city near Pittsburgh called El Quippa. So that's kind of the closest we've ever got. But I have, um, you know, heard of heard of the rivalry and the bit, you know, the big game there. Um, I'm not that far from Ohio and New York, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And it always fascinates me where states rank in terms of the, you know, the high school players turning into the D1 players. You know, like you have your Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Alabama, Florida, California are probably like the big six. And then you could maybe expand a little bit more from there. But so I do have an interest there, but no, I've never had anyone specifically on. Tell me about well, the rivalry yeah, when I you mean, were there. So well well, I mean, I still go to the games. So this is all I care about. And that's why I want to bring it up. This is what's funny. You know, like my book came out yesterday officially on November sixth. And I have all these signings and these appearance. But the Tigers are in the playoffs were 11 and 0. We've never won a on-field state championship since I've been alive. So they were wow. state champions 24 times a- until 1970. I was born and they've never won again. Oh, so no. I keep thinking my town is, you know, thinking about offing me. You're like the Billy Goat. Yeah. Yes. So I've never seen them win state champions. This is the year. And my point is, like, while I'm supposed to be focused on this Dave book, like, all I care about is Nelson <laughs> Tigers winning. That's really fun. Um, That's cool. State championship. So, you know, when my wife keeps saying, well, are you nervous? Because you're going to be I'm, we're flying to New York and, you know, I'm going to be filmed for this TV show and stuff. And I'm like. Well, what I'm nervous about is I got to get my playoff tickets and are we still going to be there? (laughs) And I told my publicist, like, don't book me anything on Fridays because I live in Columbus, Ohio, which is two hours away from Massillon. But we drive home to the game every week. And, you know, because you've got to go. And Massillon did beat McKinley this year, which is all you really care about. And so it's just so funny because I feel like later... I'm going to look back and then I'll be able to appreciate this moment. But honestly, all I care about is the state championship, man. Let's let's finally do this thing. How many more wins? Uh, we need three more wins. Three more. So we're okay. playing. Um, we're going to win this week. It should be a very easy game. And then we'll have the regional championship. So I guess we need four more wins. It- uh, last year we made it to the state semis, but we didn't make it to the state championship but where are the states where do they play out ultimately is it at in cbus or is it in cleveland and is... it'll be in canton ohio oh, actually canton. at the pro oh. football hall of fame you play on the pro football hall of fame um interesting stadium yeah in new york where... in new york they they have them at the carrier dome usually they were syracuse so, so at syracuse yeah yeah so i just had to throw that out if interesting. there's any listeners there for you know the it's it's quite a rivalry, and there's a movie called Go Tigers that is really good, and it it takes you through like what Massillon football is all about. Were you um, a big uh, Friday Night Lights guy? Like, do you have a passion? For yeah, it? and yeah. actually, that book was either going to be based on Maslin or the city in Texas. The author went to both cities and did research, so there, it's it's slightly based on Maslin as well. Yeah, but Buzz Bissinger is the author, I believe, of that book, and then of course the um, series, and uh, I think there's a movie too, isn't there? Yeah, yes, yeah. with Dawson. <laughs> Dawson's <laughs> exactly. All right, um, back to Letterman. 
Uh, this is a good kind of a break off point to kind of talk more about your history with Dave because you talk about how you know you 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 were there as a fan for pretty much ever, and you always, no matter what stage of your life you were in, you know you kind of is associated that time period with how you were watching Letterman. Like you, you talk about in the book, you talk about like how at one point it was kind of like your your DVR phase or you're listening on at a corporate job phase or whatever. You know, you go through the different eras of your life and, and what Letterman meant to you at the time. Give us a little bit, hit our listeners up with a little bit of your background with Letterman and your love for the show and, and why you well, think... Well, it was interesting you... because... Um... You know, I was just, I was pretty young and I would watch Johnny Carson with my dad on Friday nights. I'd be allowed to stay up. And, you know, I thought it was cool because I was staying up late, but I mean, I never got any of it. I mean, not really. And my dad would laugh, so I would laugh and I would think it was cool and like, oh, wow, Bob Hope is on. Like, who the hell's that? (laughs) Um, But then in the summer, I between my junior and senior year, I started watching Late Night with David Letterman on NBC, but that was a completely different thing. Like, I was getting Dave. He had more of my comic sensibility as a young punk high school kid. And then through college, I watched him as best I could, but it was mostly when he went to CBS that I really started like setting the VCR. So, you know, it, it used to be set up from Monday through Friday from 1130 to 1237, just in case. And it was just set up Monday through Friday. So I just, that became like my day, you know, and I think that's what sports are for a lot of people. You know, that's your, your breakdown time on the weekend is to sit down and watch a football or basketball game or whatever. For me, that was Letterman. And it just... I watched it in every way you could. I streamed them. I watched them on my phone. I watched it on the DVR. I watched it on the VCR. I was a stay-at-home dad. So I would watch it in the morning, give the kids bottles, and sit there and, and watch Dave. And so when it was ending, I was truly losing my TV best friend. Yeah. And it was hard because I thought, this is such has been such a part of my day. And I got so much music from it and, you know, learned about authors or different actors. You know, you you knew you were going to get a great story. I learned how to be a storyteller. And and so it that really is what sparked the book, because I thought, why isn't someone else doing this? I never thought I was going to get access to Barbara Gaines and Bill Sheff and and these people. I mean, there is no way this was going to happen. I'm just some. uh tiger fan and sitting here in ohio i mean how is this ever gonna happen but it did kind of reminds me your story kind of reminds me a little bit of like me kind of finding pearl jam because i was the same way i would listen i learned about rock music from my dad and i loved all these bands but they were my dad's bands you know and i i I love driving around with my dad like we my mom say oh you go run out on these errands i love to do that because me and my dad could rock the radio and i loved listening to Rush and Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and whoever with them. And I still love those bands. But when the uh, 90s, you know, I hate the word grunge, but when the 90s grunge thing happened, you know, I was the perfect age. And those were my bands. You know, that was where I had right. a thing now. You know, and, you know, Pearl Jam, I've been to 83 shows. You know, the 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 soundtrack of my life or whatever. You know, you want to talk to me about being 15 while well, I'll talk to you about how 
that's right when Vitology came out or whatever. But um, for me with Letterman, it's is, uh, sort of similar to you because I started wa- really watching Letterman around the CBS show as well. And I remember it happened because Wayne Gretzky was about to break the record for, I think, goals. I think it was the goals record, but it might have been the points record right around the time that his CBS show started. And he ended up doing it. He was playing at the Kings at the time, so he was playing West Coast. And ESPN2 was sort of new at that time, but they were kind of following Gretzky, and I was kind of following it as well. And he broke the record against the Vancouver Canucks, and I was a big Pablo Burry fan, so it was like a big night to watch that game. Like, oh, Burry's going to be on, Gretzky's going to break this record maybe. And it was all happening like around the first week or the first month of Letterman on CBS. And because I was up watching the hockey, I was watching Letterman as well. And I found this like thing I didn't know. I didn't totally understand, you know, the, the, what had just happened behind the scenes. You know, I hadn't read like Bill Carter yet or anything like that. Um, so I didn't know what had happened behind the scenes or anything like that, but, um, you know, discovered this kind of cool show and, and this guy and these celebrities and the music and all that. So kind of a, kind of a, started watching Letterman around the same time as you. I wonder personally, as someone who was losing your TV best friend, did you feel like it was the right time though? Like, what did you think? Yeah, I really did. In fact, when he announced, you know, this isn't in the book because it's not again, within the purview of the final six weeks, because I tried to be super strict, but I remember watching Letterman one week and he was tweeting on air and it just didn't feel right. And I thought, why is Dave tweeting? Like that is not a thing to do. And he was kind of doing it, you know, smirkily and stuff. And I remember saying, man, I think Dave's done. And one week later he announced his retirement. Now it may not be that one thing equals the other, But it just felt to me like Dave was thinking, I don't want to do social media. I don't want to do this. This is a Jimmy Fallon's man or Jimmy Kimmel game, and I'm done. So I actually thought that it was a great idea. I mean, I missed him, but it was the right choice. I think that tweeting thing was a response to a Howard Stern bit, actually, that Howard had tweeted on the air. And I think somehow they had coordinated or something. I don't remember the whole story, and I I could be wrong, but... I think it had something to do with Howard doing something similar, but it's interesting because all these shows at the time, the other shows around Dave were transforming into like, Oh, let's play this five minute game so that we can put it out on YouTube because that's really what we're focusing now on, you know, only a million people are going to watch the show live, but we can get 30 million views on this five minute video of Artie Lang and Jimmy Fallon playing beer pong or something. And yeah, I mean, I always, you know, it's never going to happen, but I always thought, you know, if I got booked on Jimmy Fallon, I would probably walk out with sorry, Twister and Parcheesi under my arms and then sit down. And when he asked me a question, I would want (laughs) to say, oh, I thought we would play a game. You you want to (laughs) talk? Right. Because um, I mean, that's what it is now. And it's okay if that's what it is. But that isn't what Letterman was. And I'm glad that instead of him 
trying to, you know, play Jenga with uh, Regis, he said, hey, I'm going home. Well, and then there's this other dynamic I want to get your your thing on, too, is it's also, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and his crying about politics, you know, crying about his son and, you know, getting into the weeds with that. And then, I mean, the show on um, CBS, I can't think of the guy's name. The, Colbert. Mean, Colbert. Yeah, that's totally, I mean, some political thing that just doesn't interest me. And then, you know, when Fallon had Trump on and, and kind of just tried to play it like it had been played for 50 years, he got kind of criticized, had to put out kind of what, what I thought was kind of a really weird kind of fake apology. But it's like just this kind of shift into this really strange political thing that started maybe around 2016 or a little bit before that. Again, I just don't think would have been a great fit for Letterman. How, how do you see him fitting into the politicized part of all this the last few years well i mean i do think that that is like one of the most interesting parts of this book is that because i'm i focus on what they really said not i don't comment on what they say it's actually what people said you get this slice of american life when exactly what you're saying that wasn't in that's not how people talk that's not how it was I mean, you really are getting jokes and conversations. And it honestly happened um, like, you know, less than a couple months after Dave said goodbye. Trump really. In fact, Dave makes a joke in one of the last shows about Trump running and just says, oh, yeah, he's going to run like, yeah, sure. Or something like that, because it's it's inconceivable in 2015. Right. And um, I'm glad, you know, an interesting thing going backwards this probably isn't really answering your question. But what I remember is that Johnny Carson um, retired and it really isn't too much longer, maybe two years when Monica Lewinsky came around. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm glad we didn't have to hear Johnny Carson you know, do Monica Lewinsky jokes. And I feel the same way about Dave. Like, I'm glad Dave got out before the world was just so mean to each other. I totally agree. And, you know, I watched, I was, a, I don't know what you thought of his Netflix show. I was a little disappointed. I liked it. I was a little disappointed. Let me tell you why. Um, obviously, the episode I was most excited about was the Howard Stern show. And very few people get to spend an hour with Howard, you know, in that way. Like, that's rare, rare. Um, especially in, in 2016. And I just couldn't believe like how much time Dave spent talking about Donald Trump. And like, I get the part of like, there was a little bit of interesting, maybe stuff there about, you know, the history that Trump and Howard had, and maybe you want to spend five minutes on that, but like, man, I just couldn't believe it. And like, I, I feel like I'm Watching that, I felt even better about Letterman ending when it did because I, I feel like he would have, I feel like he would have just got sucked more and more down into this insanity of like, you know, because I look at love or hate Trump. The one thing he's great at is making everything about Trump, right? I mean, no one would, I don't think anyone would disagree. He's incredibly skilled at that, you know, and like for him to be able to 
almost indirectly from afar make this like incredible opportunity that Dave had with Howard get stalled out by that was just disappointing to me. Um, and it kind of, well, especially if my memory serves, I haven't, I watched the shows when they came out. So I'm certainly not an expert on Dave's Netflix show. I've never seen any of the episodes twice, but my memory is that in the Obama one, they don't mention Trump at all. Interesting. There's I don't no think I've seen the Obama Trump. one. So it's interesting that you, that I don't even remember the Howard Stern one. Um, so I don't remember that. The, I mean, I kind of do, but I don't remember them talking about Trump. I remember they did in one of them. But um, I, I mean, I don't I'm glad that Dave didn't have to deal with it. I'm glad that he got out um, in time. I don't I don't I don't know what the solution is. But it's interesting. The I just recently started watching Seth Meyers, so I watch no late night shows at all. But I've recently watched Seth because I love Amber Ruffin. She's one of his writers, and I think she's so funny. I'm slightly in love with her. My wife, like, is keeping an eye on the two of us. Um, and but the other day, like, I just. You know, I wasn't in the mood to hear about frickin' politics, yeah. and that's all that it was. And it's, you know, whether it's funny or not, I don't know. But I'm like, I don't know what late night, I don't know what the answer is for late night hosts, honestly. I don't know that you can ignore it. But when you lean into it, sometimes that's not what we want to hear. Like, you just want to laugh. Yeah, my, I don't know. my burnout factor, especially right now, like a day after a midterm. My burnout factor is a thousand when it comes to politics. You know what I mean? And and when I find yeah. if I'm up at twelve thirty thinking I'm gonna watch a fun, hilarious show, it's just not and like there's probably a way to do it great, you know? But Jimmy Kimmel, I don't think he's it hasn't done his show any favors, I don't think. Um and I mean I I wouldn't even consider watching Colbert. I mean I just have no interest at all. So but um yeah, it's yeah, a tough spot for those really guys. Doing it right, and probably Conan. Conan is probably doing it the best. Interesting. I feel like Conan hasn't smart really guy. smart guy there gotten so, yeah. um, totally sucked up in it either way. But I mean, I don't know how you can joke about it either because it's. I mean, some of it's just not funny. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. It's funny. You're the first person that's actually. Um, got me in this place and I've been thinking like that I was going to be prepared to answer the question what would Letterman do about Trump and I totally forgot that my prepared answer you can see what a professional I am <laughs> um was going to be to say that you know Dave did not make jokes about the OJ Simpson trial yeah he got really mad at Stern for that's interesting cuz Stern was the first one I think who he wore a shirt or something and really pissed off Letterman I remember Letterman said to him I don't get in the habit of laughing about double murders or something like right. that. Right. And Dave yeah. made no jokes about it until the verdict came in. That's that's the first time Dave made jokes about it. So, you know, there is a hope that Dave might have removed himself from this. Now, if he had, his ratings would have died and they'd have fired him <laughs> because his ratings, uh, you know, that's when he he was number one until O.J. Simpson. That's really interesting. Um, That's really interesting. Uh, but let's let's go back yeah. to Eddie Vedder for a second. Sure. So have you heard Eddie Vedder sing "Keep Me in Your Heart" for a while at I, the Letterman tribute? I have. Beautiful. 
Oh, it's so good. Yes. I actually captured it and I got it in my phone. And so I'm glad that was such a great performance. Um, that's one of my favorite songs. And it's it's kind of the Easter egg in my book that all of the chapter titles are Warren Zevon song titles. Wow. Very, very interesting. I, I did not. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't point it out because I wanted to be cool. And so keep me in your heart for a while is the last chapter title. And then Eddie Vedder sang it to Dave at a Letterman tribute. I think it was for the Mark Twain award. And I was like, damn it. People are going to think I picked this because Eddie Vedder sang it, but I had already, you know, I had already had it plotted out as a great end chapter title. Um, That is really cool. You know, one thing that Eddie Vedder is great at, um, especially when he's in Eddie Vedder solo mode, is picking out the perfect song for the perfect occasion. It's almost never a song that he wrote. It's almost always something like a, you know, a Zivon song or, um, or I could probably, you know, a Springsteen song, whatever. So many different examples I could we could think of and talk about. But um, he's really great at that, at picking the perfect song for the perfect moment. And, um, well, and he also wrote a song for Twin Peaks season three called Out of Sand. And it plays in basically the penultimate episode, part 16, that really sums up where things are. And I think he wrote it for Twin Peaks, and it's beautiful. It's called Out of Sand. If you don't have it, I'll send it no, to you. No, I do. I do. And that's another thing he's great at is write, like he wrote uh, Man of the Hour for, the, um, for, for a film to play at the end, um, which is, oh, what the heck is the movie? I'll think of it in a second, and then uh, I know he did the, the into the, the wild soundtrack. The soundtrack yeah, know? into the wild. It's not that one. No, it's for a different movie. He wrote just one song. It's actually a pearl. It actually ended up being a Pearl Jam song, as opposed to you know a um, just an Eddie Vedder song. Like the uh, Into the Wild soundtrack is basically serves as oh, it's from Big Fish. Big I Fish. That's what it was. Google. Thank you, Big Fish. Oh, that would have drove me nuts. And it, <laughs> they ended up using it for the credits. And I mean, like I, like I actually saw the only time I ever seen Pearl Jam in Seattle was in October of two thousand three, and it was at this really cool benefit um, that sold out in thirty seconds. And I was at college at the time, and happened to back when you could actually get tickets on Ticketmaster, you didn't have to be a bot. Now, what a what a strange thing. Yeah, I just scored them like. I was like, you know what? I'll just try. And if I get the tickets, we'll, I'll figure out how to get to Seattle after. And magically pulled two, a pair um, to this benefit and got to see him in this place called Benaroya Hall, which is this beautiful little place on a campus in Seattle. And they debuted Man of the Hour that night. And he talked about how it was going to be for this movie. And then you know, I made my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we, we went to see this movie basically cold because I, had a, I wanted to hear Man of the Hour in the theater. And just, oh, just, it was perfect. So anyway, um, The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan. Let's talk a little bit more about some things that really um, interested me and kind of stuff I want to ask you about from this really cool book, uh, which is available now in stores. And uh, you can find Scott on Twitter. Uh, He's at Scott Luck Story, which is a good place to uh, follow him and find out stuff about the book, which is now available in stores, although some of you have reached out to me um, and said you got it last week at stores. That's a weird thing about books. They kind of kind of just kind of leak into the stores, I think. They... <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, nobody really followed the release date, which I'm fine with. Yeah, the sooner it... they're out there, the better. I, you know, I don't care when it comes out. But now it should be everywhere. Yeah, it should be everywhere now. And, of course, Amazon as well. 
Um, we talked about. Let's see. I'm going through my list because I've been kind of jumping around. Uh, I know I got you off let's, topic a couple times. So let's talk about access a little bit because you had you got some incredible, incredible people. I mean, to sit down and really talk to you about this in general. What was the from the people whose names are part of the oral history more specifically? What was the kind of uh, mood when you kind of tell them what you were up to and and what you wanted to do? Was it like, oh my god, would it, like like with Jeff? I was telling you about that USFL book. When he would reach out to people, he'd be like, wow, I get to talk about this thing that was like the greatest thing I did in my life, especially the people who didn't go on to the NFL after the league. It's like, wow, let's do this, you know? And then I just wonder, like, what was the what was the reception like? Were people excited to tell these stories? Were they not ready? Was it still raw? Like, what was in general kind of the the way you were greeted by the people who make up the oral history part of the book? I mean, I feel like the first step was always bewilderment. Uh, I think every single person that I talked to, except one, um, thought this was a horrible idea for a book and that no one was going to be interested. And why on earth would I be why would I care about this? You know, and I was thinking about when you were telling the story about how you relate Dave to Wayne Gretzky and, you know, like I relate it to where I lived. They didn't get that. I don't think that ever seeped in because these most of them worked for Dave for 20, 25 to 30 years. So to them, it was just a job. And and they just didn't. It it was so weird. Like I had to really pull on them at, at the beginning to even get them to realize, no, no, no. And they, you know, kind of like, well, you don't want to hear the story about president caught Larry Bud Melman peeing, do you? And like, yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah, we want to hear that story. Right. And they were sort of flabbergasted by it. I don't think they realized just the amazing (laughs) thing that they had done. And my my favorite one was uh, Sheila Rogers. She was the booking agent. So, you know, like you, you know, you, you work hard to book people. And when I'm talking to this lady, all I'm thinking is if I could have her email contact list, I could write books for the rest of my life, you know? And the first thing she said to me, I said, hi, I'm Scott. Thank you for taking this time to speak with me. And she said, I'm regretting it already. (laughs) That was the first thing out the door. And the last thing she said to me after we talked for about an hour and a half, when she hung up, she said, thank you for this talk. Like, I it, I really needed it. And it really made me appreciate what I did. And you're a really good interviewer. And I thought someone who worked for wow, Dave nice. for 25 years just complimented me on interviewing. And I, you know, that, w- that was very rewarding. But none of them wanted to talk to me, really. <laughs> I mean, they really didn't. It's interesting because it sounds like, it sounds like – I bet part of it was a little bit of self-deprecation. Like we never think what we do is important or interesting. Um, and, yeah. and like you said, kind of getting yeah. – uh, they, they were in that bubble. You know, They're just in that where you can't, you can't see what you're doing because you're so close to it. You know, So it kind of sounds like you got a lot of that. And then it sounds like maybe, and especially in the case of the booker, that you, they found out that there was a story there that they wanted to tell. Did you get that more than once? Yeah. yeah. I mean I did. And, and what's been – really cool is 
most of them, you know, then they were willing afterwards. And I think the other thing is, I would say 80% of the people I talked to had never given an interview in their life before. And they didn't want to betray Dave. They weren't sure what my intentions were. And I think that once we talked for 10 or 15 minutes, then they really, you know, I, w- I never asked about Dave ever. I only asked about them. What was their job? What would you do when you walked in the door? What was your day like? You know, okay. And then they tell you, then you ask about that task. And then, you know, when you ask someone about themselves and, and I'm actually interested, I'm not trying to trick them into later, you know, revealing something. I just wanted to know what happened. And and that's what makes a good oral history is is your memory. And um, if they didn't remember, that was OK. And then after you get a few people, I start to know how it works. So then I can say, well, I can say to the assistant director, what did you learn from Jerry Foley, the director? And they're going to say this. And and that's why the book feels like they're talking back and forth to each other, because I'm piecing together this whole experience and um, it's fun. It's like working the biggest jigsaw puzzle in the world. And it's just fun. This is a boring question you're going to get on an interview, but I'm sure you took a run Ooh. at it. Did you get close to Dave? Or I don't know. You don't I know? never asked anyone for Dave. Oh. I never mentioned Dave. I never asked for it. Um, I figured I, I don't, you know, I think it was... It was one of the writers, I don't remember who, but when we first got on the phone, you know, and I said, you know, thanks for doing this. And they were like, oh, that's okay. You know, I saw that you interviewed Sheila and Barbara, so I know Dave's approved this. So I figured, sure, I'd do it. And then I was like, what? Wow, like, that's Dave knows yeah. about me? <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't even consider that. Hey, no. I mean, I figured if Dave wanted to be a part of this, that Barbara Gaines or Bill Sheff, or someone would have said, because that's how I really got everyone else. Barbara Gaines, she was the executive producer for 35 years with Dave. And she was my first interview. And she's the one that sort of opened. I said, who else should I talk to? And she would give me these people. And she never said, what about Dave? You know, and, and I just, and I wanted them to trust me that I wasn't like doing this to try to get to Dave. And to be honest, I don't think Dave would have fit in the book because that's not really what the book's about. The book is about the people that did work for these episodes. I can only speak for myself, but I never once said, I wonder what Dave would have said. Like, it just didn't come up in my head either. When you get into reading the book, you know, you you get used to Dave being the central focus of the book or the show being the central focus of the book, but you're not looking for Dave. At least that was my experience. I have to ask you about the it's going to be I'm going to screw up his title but the um the president of late night programming East Coast I think is how Howard used to always say it uh yeah. Vinny Favalli what was it, what was what was Vinny like take me take me into your experience with him just because I know him as a as, as a character through Stern show cuz I don't know if you if you're a Stern guy or not but like Vinny's been on Stern for years and years and years as a caller and a kind of a character on the show. So I'm curious what your experiences were with him and what you can kind of add to, uh, add to his mystique. Well, Vinny was really great to me. He, um, he was the only person that just outright laughed 
at me uh, because he he said, you're not asking me any of the salacious questions about Dave or, you know, some of the um, more, I don't know, uh, torrid aspects of David Letterman. And I said, oh, no, this I don't really want any gossip. Or dirt, and he said, "Who writes a book and doesn't want gossip and dirt?" I don't know if this is going to work. And I was like, I, "I, I, you know, I didn't want anything that would. I never want someone to talk to me and then afterwards think, ugh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Like it's just not my way." So, so that was very funny to me that he, he. I mean, he actually laughed out loud about it. And then he, you know, he, he was the one that sort of fought with Barbara Gaines about doing a clip show he produced a a clip show on Mm -hmm. cbs and they really didn't want it so barbara Gaines and him do go back and forth in the book kind of arguing about why why they should have it why they shouldn't um but he he was very nice to me i mean i i liked Vinny a lot one thing i really liked about the book was it's really cool the way you did it because you're going from show to show and what it did for me in kind of putting my memories together was remembering like, okay, these few guests tried a song, right? Like it was Martin Short and Adam Sandler and um, uh, there was a couple other people who did songs. Lang. Okay, yeah. And then there was like – and these people brought gifts, right? Like Howard brought a painting for Dave's wife and, you know, and these people – you know, like the way – there was different ways that different – guests handled their time like you make a really great point which i think is really cool about how in these last six weeks it's not about people coming out to promote films it's really about or or, or projects or whatever it's about people coming out and spending one last time with dave and and it was interesting for me as a reader to kind of be able to track based on the way the book is set up how different people handled that time and how if you categorize it like I was clumsily trying to, like the gift people or the song people or the music guests or whatever, you kind of got to see who did it well, who did it not as well. It was, it was really interesting for me, and I was curious as a fan of the show that you are, like if you think of it like that, like what you grew to appreciate about the guests in the first six weeks. Maybe you, you want to take it a different way, and that's fine than I did. But like as no, some, I, someone who I, loved I think the show – yeah, I mean, you really make a good point about that. And it was hard for me because, like I said, I, I I don't like to be mean. That isn't my way in. I mean, I, I think of myself as a comic in real life, which is probably strange. But I always make me the butt of the joke, not someone else. And there are people who went on the last six weeks and honestly didn't do well. And I wasn't sure if it was really my place to say that they didn't make the right choice and someone else made the right, you know, like as an example, Adam Sandler's song is phenomenal. Uh, It's perfect. It's what you want. And, you know, some of the other songs, not so much. They didn't hit the right tone. And I but I also didn't want to say something negative about it because it was their tribute to Dave and they tried to do maybe the best that they could because there are also some people that go on the show and don't even mention that Dave is leaving. And I Clinton. thought like what? Clinton was an example of that, right? Bill yeah, yeah, Clinton. Yeah. I mean, how do you not 
he he doesn't mention that Dave is leaving. Like somebody should have at least said as he went out, uh, by the way, <laughs> you might want to mention. <laughs> right. Um, and that's just nutty to me. So and the way that I decided to do the book, I'm obviously not going to transcribe everything everyone said because that's a horrible thing. But my, my my thought process was, OK, print the tributes because that's what this book is about. So some people just didn't say anything. And if you didn't say anything, you know, you really the Clinton part goes really quickly in the book because there's not much to say. It was a normal talk show appearance. Um, I think the person who did the best was norm mcdonald i think that's the standard oh yeah i totally agree. of those last six weeks i mean his it, it it's ridiculous to rank stand-up routines but i honestly think it's the best stand-up set that anyone ever did on letterman and it's the last one which is pretty freaking cool right i love norm i i really oh, like his so funny yeah and i really like his netflix show i'm glad it didn't yeah get I, I watched it all i loved it i loved it too i think that that's something I'm really excited about Dave's post late show career because that's you know him getting involved in a producer role and uh, I don't know if you heard I actually listened to Norm on Stern and he talked a lot about working with Dave on the show and it was really interesting to find out um, you know Dave in this new role behind the scenes and I think the show was great and I totally agree that you know when I look at the last six uh, the final six weeks of the show if I were to rank the guests. You know, I think I would put Norm McDonald number number one um, as like m- that you have to see it just because I think it if you didn't if you didn't see anything else, I think you somehow you got the you, you got you got you got what it was about the spirit of it in that one what five or six minute stand up set or whatever it was. Yeah, it's just amazing. And I tried to get to Norm. I, I didn't overly try to get to celebrities for the book because I thought. For the most part, they had their say, and all they would really say, if you interviewed them again, they'd be like, yeah, I loved it. I mean, right, what, what are you really going to get? Right. But I thought the two celebrities that I tried to get was Amy Sedaris and Norm MacDonald because they were fans of Dave, and I thought they could maybe add something to the book, and I could never get to either of them. But. The, um, the other, that's interesting. The other, the other, uh, the other ones that I, you know, I thought was really interesting was you were talking about in the book how when Sandler did his song, they felt bad because he only ended up with four minutes on the couch and four minutes to do his song. He only got the eight minutes and, and it kind of brought up this thing about how these shows were so loaded that a lot of time guests who would normally get 15 minutes as the A guest, you know, were in the B guest spot. Um, and that I just want to kind of throw out as, as to anyone who's interested, it's really interesting to find out the mechanics of that and kind of how they piece this all together. But you know, I thought it was really interesting to find out. It's like they felt bad, but then in the next breath, they're like, but Sandler didn't care. Sandler was just happy to be a part of it and to be able to do his song. And like, it's like the kind of thing that, you know, it's just interesting the way it, it says something about Dave, the way these celebrities who we know have egos, you know, were able to like leave them, check them. You know, it's like, no, there, there was this like greater thing. Like people really wanted to be a part of this. You know, people wanted to go out there. I think that says a lot about Dave and a lot about the show. Yeah. And I really tried to get from Sheila Rogers, you know, if there was someone that they didn't get or someone that was angry, they didn't get to be in and, and she wasn't, she wasn't cracking. So I didn't really get that information. Uh, again, not to be salacious, but to understand the mechanics of it. I mean, right. they they all said they just 
wanted to be on. They were happy to pay tribute to Dave. And I think Adam Sandler, that song is, is it's funny. It's got great jokes, but it also has some heart in it. And when those things happen, that's when you really, when those last episodes really shine. And by the way, that's when Adam Sandler's at his best. When it's funny yeah, and he's got true. some heart in it, right? I mean, that's when he's really at his best. Like if you watch, yeah, his... I can't think. Like, re- is it Remote Control or whatever that one is? I think it is called Remote Control. Click. His movie, it's Click. Click. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that's a movie that's so funny, but the ending gets you. Yeah, with the uh, you only get what you give. It's a great use of song in the movie. Um, yeah, no, he's and if you watch his new Netflix special, there's a great moment where he sings a tribute to Chris Farley. That is. Very similar in the in, to his Dave tribute in the sense that it's funny but has this incredible heart to it and um, really makes you miss Chris Farley a lot. But um, yeah, no, I, I thought that um, I thought that that was really interesting to find to find these celebrities and, and just kind of them, you know, again not out there to promote really, uh, just out there to be a part of something that they thought was bigger than them. And you know, I'm sure a lot of those right people in- don't. Not all of them, but I'm sure some of those people don't often find themselves thinking something is bigger than them. Right. And I think, to me, that's a point that I tried to make early in the book, that this is about face-to-face conversation. And we need it now more than ever, because that's how we're going to get through what we're going through, being completely divided. And and it's even not about being divided. It's it's so much about our phones. And we're just looking down at our phones all the time instead of looking at each other um i mean i wonder how long it'll be until people access their phone on talk shows <laughs> you know i mean i don't know well listen the last days of letterman the final six weeks by scott ryan uh some might have thought it's a bad idea i'm gonna look at people know here if i didn't think so i just wouldn't say anything but it works amazingly and i had so much fun really reading this book um, I do have a copy, and if you're interested, I will give one away to someone who'd like to email uh, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and then I'm going to need you to tweet out uh, the Amazon link and tag Scott in it at Scott Luck's story um, so we make sure your followers know about this awesome book. The Last Days of Letterman, the final six weeks. Again, it's at Scott Luck's story on Twitter. It's available now wherever you buy books. And I like ebooks, but this is one to own. Um, because it really is it's beautiful yeah i mean and and again that is not me uh that was the designer mark who did a phenomenal job but it is that's what i wanted it to be i i had to fight to get it in color and these are full color pictures and the staff gave it you see behind the scenes um it's not just pictures from the their twitter account which is where most of them come from but um Thanks so much. This was yes, fun. Yes, this is awesome. I really appreciate it. I'm going to need you to DM me football scores the next few weeks. I want to know what happens, so please keep me in the loop. I'm a that. nervous wreck, and, you know, I just, you know, you can, you can, everyone can stop listening. This will just be me ranting about the Tigers, but here's the thing. I am not made for this kind of pressure. I know that, like, <laughs> as a sports person, like, it's weird that I even have this thing. It's just I grew up there. We've sat in the same seats because you have 
season tickets since I was eight years old. You know, I went with my dad. Now my son goes with me, you know, and, and my daughters and stuff. And it's just so much about family. And I can't take it. I start to get nervous before the game. And it's so stupid. And I hate it. And I just, you know, I'm, I don't have it in me. Well, I hope I'm you, an artist. I not hope a, not not supposed to be doing this. I hope you have your Eddie, your Eddie Vedder moment, like he had with the Cubs a couple years ago. Uh, I need it. Yeah, your your Eddie Vedder and your uh, Bill Murray uh, moment, right? Um, with like the with, like, the Cubs hat because you deserve it. Um, my brother actually played D one hockey at Yale, and uh, they won the national championship in 2013. And you know, for my family, it was. One right, of the greatest things ever. So I mean, I know well, sometimes in my brain I let myself think of the clock ticking down four, three, two, one, oh, and we're state champions for the first time since I've been on the planet, and I can't. Like my brain knocks it away. It's like don't even do it to yourself, buddy. You're gonna be driving around one game at a time. You're gonna be driving around and like, wow, am I listening to Dream On by Aerosmith again? (laughs) 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 I'm a big, I'm a big New Orleans Saints fan, and in 2009 when we went on our run, that ultimately ended with basically the only championship other than my brothers, any of my teams has ever won. Uh, Yeah, I I was like, why am I listening to Dream On by Aerosmith again? Like, why does this keep happening to me? Like, where am I? I I supposed to turn six blocks ago. I'm like daydreaming. (laughs) About Drew Brees and the Lombardi Trophy. It's like, but uh, luckily it happened. All right, Scott, thank you so much. Uh, anything else you want to mention plug-wise? I, I really want to make sure we, we got it. everything. I didn't miss anything, did I? Uh, no, I will be in Dallas at Intrabang Books on November 18th. And then on March 28th, 2019, I know that's a long way off, March 28th, we are doing a Letterman panel at the 92nd Y in New York City, and we're going to get all the people from the book, and we're going to celebrate the last six weeks, and it's going to be a really cool event in New York City. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all the time. Uh, thank you so much for doing this and, and letting us help you uh, promote The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan. Thank you. I want to thank Scott Ryan and Kenny Albert for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and all the episodes of our podcast on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. I'm going to try to get us on Spotify. And if there's somewhere where you listen to podcasts and we're not there, let me know. You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can also email me. Or find me on Twitter, excuse me, at sports underscore casters. Don't forget about my friend Peter Winston and his awesome podcast uh, called Greetings from Allentown. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. And his latest episode is about the WWE or WWF Spotlight, I believe, is a show. No, might be Superstars. It's a WWF Superstars from 1991. Um, you can check that out. Greetings from Allentown. Just search that in Apple Podcasts. We are currently in preparation for the next episode of the Adams Division podcast that we do. And it's going to be a Thanksgiving night spectacular as we rank Survivor Series 1987 to 1998 Deadly Game, which I attended. 
that's the range we're going to review and rank and talk about. Peter and I will be out Thanksgiving week sometime. We haven't decided who I do Thanksgiving Eve, who I do Thanksgiving, uh, but it'll be out that week. Uh, we're doing our research right now, watching old Survivor series. And it's funny because I should really be watching like 95 or 94, ones I'm not as familiar with. Uh, but in the name of research, I'm watching like 87 and 88, ones that I just love, even though I don't really need to watch them again because I've seen them, you know, 30, 40 times or more. Who knows how many, t- like who knows how many times when I was eight, I watched Survivor Series 88. I mean, I might have watched it every day for six weeks, six months, who knows. Uh, but uh, Peter and I will, will will be doing that soon. Also, uh, I got some good news. I'm going to be on a podcast in February. I know that seems like a while away, but I'm going to be on the Place to Be Nation podcast. They just had their 500th episode, and uh, I'll be on in February to talk about a MSG, Madison Square Garden, WWF house show from January of 1989. So that's tentatively scheduled for the middle of February. Uh, I'll be on with uh, JT and Scott, and I strongly suggest you check out Place to Be Nation. Uh, they do some great stuff there, currently working on top 100 tag teams uh, there. So, placetobenation.com. Great site, great guys, great community, and I'm really looking forward to being on their show for the first time. Uh, With all that said, I think that's it for plugs. Uh, I know that was a bunch of them, but I think that's it. Uh, Don't forget, again, thesportscasters.gmail.com. I'd love to give some of these books away, and uh, I don't mind if it's to help you because it's something you'd like to read. Or if it's a case of, hey, my dad would love to read Jane Levy's book about Babe Ruth. Maybe I will email Steve and get that book and then give it to him for Christmas. I'm cool with that, too. Next week's show uh, brings us to one last thing. And uh, what I wanted to talk about today is booking a little bit. uh, Because I mentioned in the beginning that I spent a lot of time uh, this week and recently kind of Booking this show, I've been working a lot harder, as you could probably notice from the frequency of the episodes. I'm working a lot harder to kind of uh, kind of build this back up a little bit and get ready for Season 9. And when January comes and Season 9 starts, I'm going to start cashing in favors. You know, I'm going to start calling some of these people who have platforms that I've helped over the years and say, I need you. I need you to help me promote this. So I'm going to try to build it up. And really work hard at it. And uh, part of that is booking because the show is mostly now about me interviewing people. And of course it's about this too. One last thing. you know, I've been working with my brother Greg on this. Uh, because as I've said a few times, I want it to be more personal. I want it to be a point in the show where you get to know me a little bit. And hopefully in turn makes you care a little bit more about the people that I talk to and what we talk about. Uh, and... Like I said, I spent the week booking the show, and it's really hard because you have to send a lot of emails, you have to send a lot of text messages, you have to bother people, and you have to ask them to do a favor for you that really, look at it, it doesn't probably do a lot for them, right? I mean, hopefully we'll sell 20 books for Scott. That'd be a dream. And if that's the case, it's probably more than worth his time. Right, But what did we do for Kenny Albert today? We did nothing for him. Uh, but he did me a favor, and he came on the show, and I never lose sight of that. Uh, you know, I was, I've was i been trying to book Kyle Brandt on the show. Jeff Perlman just did an unbelievable 
uh, unbelievable thing. Kyle's busy. He's a busy dude, right? He's got two shows on NFL Network. And what I love about Kyle is he just emails me back and says, I can't do it right now. And it's cool because I know it. And then I say, all right, I'll email you another time and see if we can do it then. No problem. Love that. All day. But what sucks about it is that is a rarity. Most of the time, if you if I can't book someone, I just never hear from them. Text messages, you know they get that don't come back. Emails that don't get responded to. You know they see them because you've corresponded with them in the past. There's a guy who works for Ringer. I won't say his name, but he's a writer for Ringer. He writes about football there. He's been on this podcast. He's, he, 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 I think he was out in July one year, and he had written a story that I thought was cool. And he came on. We had a great time. He said he'd do it anytime. So I emailed him and emailed him and emailed him and emailed him and just didn't hear anything. And then I was talking to Brian Curtis, and I mentioned to him that, you know, that it seems like a, a trend at Ringer. Uh, that it's much harder to get a hold of the writers than it was at Grantland. Next day, that email came back from him. Oh, I'm sorry, I just seen this, you know, anytime. I wrote back, said, thank you, I appreciate that, I'll let you know. Well, this football season, probably emailed the guy four times, never once heard a response. Not a, I'm busy, not a no thank you, nothing like that. And that's that's frustrating. You know, and then there's, you book someone, and they... They come on uh, and they say they're going to do it on Tuesday at 10 o'clock and you call them on Tuesday at 10 o'clock and you get their voicemail. And that's frustrating. And then you got to chase them. Uh, But I did have a good week booking. Here's what I have. All right. Jane is going to be on hopefully next week. Also next week, Josh Levin from Slate is going to be on. Josh has done this show two times before. We can get him on for a third time. And uh, he's been great. He's even offering to do it from his podcast studio. So we have a great connection. Uh, I talked about the books that we booked. Sean McIndoe and Tim Hornbreaker and John Feinstein. Fingers crossed. I also talked to the before-mentioned Brian Curtis. Uh, And Brian Curtis is going to record with me late next week. So probably be on in two weeks would be my guess. Especially... If we do fit Jane in, we already know for sure that Josh Levin is going to be here next week. Uh, so booking the podcast, it can be really rewarding. You know, when you nail when I when I when I got Peter King, I couldn't believe it. You know, when I booked Frank DeFord or Artie Lang or Duff McKagan, wow. You know, but when someone like Al Michaels leaves you standing at the altar, it's a bummer because you thought you had him. And I'm nervous about that with John Feinstein. Another thing I'm working on really hard right now is Tony Kornheiser. And I don't know if I'm – look, at I'm shooting for the moon with that one. I'd love to have Tony Kornheiser on. I emailed with his son, Michael. Uh, I just emailed their general mailbag at TonyKornheiserShow.com. And Michael responded for more information. I sent him more information. He said he talked to his dad. So I'm working on that one. I also talked to Gabe Polsky who did a documentary called Red Army, and he was on uh, a while back uh, talking about Red Army. And um, he has a new film called The Search for Greatness. Uh, And I think I'm going to have a chance to view that and have Gabe on and talk to Gabe. That will be really cool. Having troubles tracking down the Canadian Richard Deitch, 
Uh, he doesn't have an SI email anymore. I have his phone. I text him and text him, but having trouble tracking him down. And Jimmy Trainer from SI is another one I just can't seem to get a hold of. Um, as for ESPN, I'd love to get Joe Testatori. We've had the Monday Night Football announcer on for a few years in a row now. I think six. Uh, but that's going to have to be till December as well as Mila Kimes. If I didn't screw that up, Mila Kimes, I think that's her name. She's not Yale girl. Uh, but booking, booking, booking right now. Try to book a show till the end of the year. See you next week. Be my